All righty, James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. And the title of today's study is Knowing God and Overcoming Sin. In the opening verses, we were instructed on allowing trials to work in us endurance, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But now in this section of Scripture, we're going to be instructed on not succumbing to temptation. The trials of verse 2, the Greek word for trials of verse 2, is the same word in verse 13 for trials. We have some nouns and verbs, but it's the same root word. And it's, it's kind of definition one or definition two. The context will determine. And so in verse two, we're talking about trials, difficult happenings of life. Whereas in verse 13, we're talking about those solicitations to actually commit sin. It's interesting. I think you can make a case that the same event can either be a trial that produces endurance in us, or it can be an event where we are led off into temptation. Obviously, we know what the Lord wants us to be able to do. He wants us to go into that trial, that event, and he wants to build into us endurance and strength. And isn't that what we read there in verse 3? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. And here's some hope right at the beginning as we talk about this idea of walking in holiness and purity and not succumbing to sin, here's something that hopefully will give you some hope. When the event comes to your life, if we will walk it out as God has told us in these opening verses, and we will see it and view it as a trial by which God is going to build strength, you will have more strength. And the more times you walk that out and have strength, the better you're going to be able to deal with those moments and the less you'll be yielding to temptation because that's what it says. The trial is going to produce what? Endurance or patience. And we want that strength. We want that stamina to run well and walk in holiness and purity. So that one event is kind of like you're on this path and the event happens in your life and you're at the trailhead where you can either take the trail to the left called trials or you can take the trail to, you're going to go on one of them, or you take the trail to the right called temptation. And if we'll walk down that event and treat it as a trial, a trial, letting God work in our life and being those that are full of patience and allowing God to do his work, we're going to grow stronger and stronger having more endurance, and you will not always find yourself, if you feel like you're in this place, of being that place where you just cannot say no to sin. Walk it out as a trial. Don't play it out in the temptation realm. And so this is interesting about these words. It's either, um, you know, you have the noun parasmus or the, you have the, the verb parazo, so or pyrazo. So th this is just kind of, again, definition one, definition two. So the same event can create endurance and maturity, or as we're going to read, it can produce death and disobedience. How I respond is the difference. Let's read there at verse 13. As we answer, how is it that we overcome sin? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is not to blame for the temptation in your life. Why? Because God is not tempted by evil. You, he can't be solicited to do the wrong thing. And he is not in the business of soliciting people to do the wrong thing. If you find yourself with urges and options to sin before you, it is not because God has placed them there in front of you and saying, how about this? Let's see what they will do. Because the reality is, if God tempted us, 
could we ever say no? If it was God, the sovereign God of the universe, that was creating temptation and difficulty in our life, does anybody think that we would be clever enough and spiritual enough and strong enough to actually outdo him? So the fact that we are not to give in to temptation should tell us that it's not God. Because if God does, was leading us into temptation, none of us would be able to say no. What God desires to do is use the event in your life to make you more mature, not seduce you. And, and that's the way life is. So often, the same event can be one of, of difficulty, but yet God's building in us, or it's a, it's a route of temptation, and we are succumbing to those fleshly desires. It has been said, to err is human, and to blame it on the divine is even more human. I don't know who said it, but they're right. As a matter of fact, you can go back and you can look in Genesis and you can find the very first temptation. And when God comes to speak with Adam, who had given into that temptation, he immediately blames it on God. What he says is, he goes, well, it is a woman that you gave to me. And if you were if you're reading it, I think that's the emphasis to have there. I don't think, well, it's, you know, I don't think the emphasis is woman. It's like, well, you did it. I mean, I was fine before you created her and brought her in. I didn't sin before she came. And now you brought her, and now this circumstance is such that I've yielded. Well, you're the one that created this situation. Don't blame me. So it may be that some of these believers that James is writing to, having been scattered abroad through the, the trials and the tribulations, the persecution, have found themselves in very, very difficult circumstances. And as they looked at them and as they evaluated them, they're like, well, I wouldn't have never done this had persecution never come. I would have stayed in my house. I would have had my family. I would have had all these things. But now because this has all happened, I was presented in this situation. And so it's really, it's God's fault. No, it's not God's fault. Because he does not seduce us. He does not elicit... Um, you know, sinful actions from his people. But this is the common logic of the pagans. Gods, you can kind of see the, you know, you know, the mythological movie being made, and you have the gods that are looking down on this, like, you know, war table called Earth, and they're stirring up storms, and they're bringing difficulties in, and they're just having fun, you know, with men. They're capricious, and they're not uh, maybe even vengeful. But that's not God. That's not what he does. He does not do that. Blame shifting is what unrepentant people do. It's your fault. Adam, God, it's your fault. But are we repentant here? Well, I'm kind of mad at you. I mean, why did you create her? Why did you do this? Why didn't you create somebody that would hate fruit or something? You know, it's like, why, why did you create a woman that would come and, and no, you're not really repentant here. And when we find ourselves in that place, we're wanting to blame somebody else. Say, well, I'm not at most to blame. But are you willing to own what you have done completely and fully? You know, because I think we, when we're measuring it and we make statements like that, it's like, well, they did like 80% of the wrong and, and I had 20%. But what we focus is, is on the 80% because we're comparing ourselves to one another. But is that where the comparison should be made? As the comparison is not to one another, the comparison is between me and who? It's this holy God we just sang about. 
Holy, 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 we've been invited to come behind the veil. That's what has to capture our attention is the 20% or the 10% or the 1%. Rather than focusing upon what the other person did and the majority of the blame that lies there. The unpleasant events of life come to us all. And they may perplex our minds as to why they have come. But what James wants us to know is they can be used as opportunities to grow and get stronger, or they will be opportunities that are used to go and sin. But to begin with, as we think about knowing God and overcoming sin, let's come to the strong conclusion that it is not God's fault that I'm being tempted. We need to jettison that from our mind, because if you have that in your mind, you're going to find that your, your, your actions are going to go exactly where your mind is on that. So you need to have the truth. It's truth that sets us free, right? The truth of Scripture. Look at verse 14 as we begin to talk about this sin process. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So you have some similar words here. Drawn away and enticed are similar. They're both dealing with bait and lures. Um, and trying to pull somebody away. But this is where it begins with. The sin process starts with being drawn by our own desires. The word drawn here means to drag away with the connotation of initial reluctance. Drag away. So, anybody like to fish? Okay, all right, you need to start fishing, you people. Okay, so... Because I got to be able to give fishing illustrations, then you can follow. So imagine you're you have a lure. It's not live bait, okay? It's plastic with hooks on it, and you throw this out there, and as you're reeling it in, you can see a fish will come up on that, and they will look at it. A lot of times, they when the first when you throw it out there, they're interested, maybe not completely and totally, but since you put it in front of them, I got to check it out, and so they'll come up and they'll look at that. And maybe you stop reeling, and so they're staring at this, this lure, and you're staring at them, and you're messing around with it. You're trying to drag them away. They have an initial reluctance. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes they just go for it. But there's that initial reluctance. It's like, I really want to eat that thing, but those big, sharp barbs look like they're going to be a problem. And you can do something. The, the longer they stay there, the, the, you know, you can just start to play them. You can jerk that lure one time and that instinct will dr- uh, kick in and boom, they'll hit the lure. There was an initial reluctance, but because they, they played around with it a little bit, they ended up getting caught. That is the word here that we're talking about with being drawn away. So if there was no desire within us, we would be unaffected by the lures of the world. But our fallen nature desires to gratify and indulge sinful actions. Is that true? First service, true first service at least? I mean, can we blame them? Do they struggle with this? Do they have within them these sinful desires to want to go after sin? And to, yes, the answer is yes. Proof text, Romans chapter 7. I wish I was doing the right thing, but I find this other thing going on, warring with inside me that wants to do the wrong thing. And he talks about that battle that takes place. And he, at the end, he calls out and asks for the Lord to give himself help. I believe that it is instructive for us to know this process. Let me read to you from Diedrich Bonhoeffer in an article 
uh, called temptation. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read about seven or eight sentences, so hang tight. But I love the way he describes this because I, I believe that he really captures well what is going on in us when this process to be drawn away initiates. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me. Now here in my particular situation to appease desire, it is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. So there's that initial hit where we, the temptation comes and we must deal with it there. The next thing we see in verse 14 is that we, we, we come and we have, we're drawn away by our desires and enticed. So this is the next point, is that we are enticed. Again, enticed has, can be translated to catch with bait. And we are deceiving, we're deceived into thinking that that fleshly act that is in our mind and in our heart and in our passions will, be, will deliver to us what we lack, what we need to be fulfilled. That's what's happening there. This is the enticement. You need this. You want this. It's God wouldn't have put this in front of you. He wouldn't have allowed this to take place. And now we are well down this road of enticement. Satan sought to lure and bait Jesus by telling him not to go to the cross to receive the nations of the world, but instead to bow down and worship him. And Jesus immediately responded with the word of God and rebuked and rejected it. He was not like the little fish that started to swim around the lure to see what was up with it. He immediately rebuked it. He didn't allow the mind, as he said, as uh, uh, Bonhoeffer said, he didn't allow it to the mind to be aroused. He didn't allow the powers of clear discrimination and decision to be taken from him. He responded with the word of God. But there's that enticement. I would imagine it, some of you are out there thinking, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. I've been a Christian for many, many years of my life. And yet, Man, I'm struggling with sin. I, like, I'm struggling with sin today that I never struggled with before. And if this is true, that, that there's a way out, as it says in Corinthians, and I'll read that passage in just a moment to you. If it's true there's a way out, then why am I just being enticed and only going after it? What's happening? Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. And in your mind, you're like, but where is the way out? 
I mean, the where's the escape route? I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing it. It's like, you know, the bell is rung and I come like, you know, a hungry dog running to the table. I mean, where is this? If this is true, where's the escape? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a thoughtful, honest question to consider. And I would say that the escape probably was miles before you got to the moment that you're in right now. It's like the bridge is down, they've taken it down, they're going to rebuild it, and there's traffic going 75 miles an hour. And you start to get these warnings, you start to get, you know, hey, exit and detour coming up, bridge down, you get all these warnings, but you just keep on blowing by, you're not even really paying attention, you're not reading the signs, you're not in the word, you're, right. you're not seeing what's going on, you're, you're caught up with other things, and you're just, you're, you have the lure in your mind, you're not paying attention. And, and so eventually, you're blowing through barricades, you know, you're not going off the bridge, you know, you know, no harm yet, but you're blowing up the barricades, you're knocking things over, and then when it's full of momentum and too much speed, you decide to slam on the brakes, and yet you've, you've gone too far. And I believe that's where we find ourselves, is that we've blown through the warnings you know, the, of the Word of God. We've not been paying attention. We've not been in the Word. We've not been drawing strength. We've not been worshiping the Lord. And now we expect in that moment to just like have this, you know, parachute that, you know, just we can jump out and we just float away from that temptation. It does not work like that. In case that's still a little too obscure, let me get really clear on this. You're having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you know it's not right. You're convicted about it. You feel bad about it. You guys repent about it. And yet it keeps on happening. And yet in that moment of passion, you're like, Lord, deliver me. Where's the way of escape? That's not where you're going to find the escape route. Let me just be blunt. You're not going to do that. If you are you know, going to the house and you're going to have the romantic dinner and it's candlelight and then nobody's there and you're cuddled up on the couch listening to romantic music and you're kissing passionately and while you're doing this, Lord, Lord deliver me. Get real. There's not going to be deliverance there. It's like, well, we ought to be able to handle this. Listen, listen, you can't. If you can do everything I just described and you are not passionately aroused, you have other issues you're going to have to deal with. <laughs> if you didn't get that, I'm not saying anything else. You'll have to talk to your friend. <laughs> That's the way we were created. And so we end up in these moments of passion. We've blown by every exit sign. We finally see there's the, 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 the down bridge and where we wanted to hit the brakes and try and get out. You're not going to get out of it. The escape route was when your friend said, bro, I don't have a good feeling about you spending all this time with your girlfriend at the house by yourself. Don't judge me. What kind of person do you think I am? I think you're the kind of person that can sin. That's the kind of person I think you are. And you know, so when mom says, you know, honey, you shouldn't be spending time in that kind of a situation. You know, do you, have you put up, you know, boundaries? Have you talked about this? Are you held accountable? Oh, come on, mom. What kind of girl do you think I am? What kind of, what do you think I'm going to do? The kind of girl, you're the kind of guy that sins. Because we sin. And so, whereas when we read, it's like, well, you know, he'll give me an escape route. Okay. To say that God can't would not be right. But let me just say, 
you're not going to see it. Your deliverance come in that moment. It came long before. It's, your escape route is right now. It's right now where you make a decision about how you're going to deal with the lure. And, and I don't, I'm not meaning that in a, a crass way, but just that same illustration of temptation. How are you going to deal with it? Because you keep on swimming by it, eventually it's going to hook you again. Don't allow enticement to be birthed. Cut off the temptation and don't ponder or give place for deception to enter in. Let's move on. So, so far under this process of sin, we've talked about we are drawn away by our desires. Um, We are enticed. um, And then it comes to disobedience. Verse 15, then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So the next step is you're engaged in that sinful act. And then the end of verse 15, it produces death. That's the ultimate end game of sin and Satan. It is not to benefit you. It's not to play. Satan does not care about your happiness. He does not care. And so all that he's going to throw in front of you, all the world's going to throw in front of you, all that's going to be you know, uh, conjured up in your mind that is still a work in progress to sin is going to lie to you. So what do we do? Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is not a new topic. We're talking about sin. And he says, don't be deceived or don't fall into temptation. So how do we defeat deception? Well, verse 16, don't let it happen. Don't let it, don't be deceived. This is an imperative. This is a commandment that we have to carry out. We have to determine that I am not going to be deceived. Deceived here means to proceed without a sense of proper direction, go astray, be misled. And this part of the definition really kind of, I think, illustrates it. Wander about aimlessly. Don't wander about aimlessly, James is saying. Have a purpose, have a focus in your life and in your walk with the Lord. Be determined, have a goal, have a sight of how you're going to be at school and how you're going to be at work and how you're going to be with your your wife and your kids and how you're going to be, you know, when you're alone. What is the goal that you have? Don't wander aimlessly in these arenas of your life. I would imagine if there is an area where you are under strong temptation is because you can step back and say, I've, not, I've, not, I've been walking aimlessly here. I've not been walking as a believer with a goal to evangelize. I've not been walking as a person to do the right thing. I've just kind of been, I, I relax. I'm like King David. It's time for the kings to go to war, but I'm at home relaxing. And there's Bathsheba. So we need to make certain that we don't let it happen. If he's saying don't be deceived, then it it stands that there is a possibility to not be deceived. And this is the key. Don't be deceived. Look at verse 17. Every good gift. Hang on a second. Let me back up. I want one more comment on this deception. Deception is dependent upon two elements. Now, maybe you can add more and maybe you'll combine this into one point, but this is important. Deception is dependent upon two elements. One, we're misled into thinking that the bait will satisfy. That's, that's That's point number one for deception to work. Point number two 
is that we forget that God is the one who satisfies us. I, I mean, just go turn that over in your heart and your mind as I will, because this is, this is the key. This is the key. Is I'm not going to be deceived, meaning I will understand that bait will not satisfy me completely or make, complete me or make me whole. And I'm not going to forget it's God who satisfies, which leads us into verse 17. Every good gift, we're still talking about sin here, right? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and, come down and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What is that? God is good. It is vital that if we're going to not be deceived, that we know verse 17. And I, I just have a theory. It's not one I've, because I've talked about, it, but I just have this theory. I think verse 17 is obscure to most of us. It's like, what is this? we're talking about temptation, and now every good gift and perfect comes from, what are we talking about? How do we get here? Oh, you're going to see this. But that, again, that point that we got to know that God is good. Because if I know that God is good, now I can say no to the bait. The idea that God is withholding good was a conclusion that some of these scattered believers had erroneously come to. You know, like he's holding something back. You know, God couldn't possibly be good if he allows these trials and leads me into sin. No, God does not lead you into sin. So the Lord is not withholding good from our lives. This is what we have to know. This is what we need to make certain we're not deceived from on because this is it. It's like when you're thinking about going into sin, it's just like Satan did with, with Jesus. I'll give you the nations and you don't have to go through the hard route. Just take the quick, easy route. God, the Father, man, he's going to make you go to the cross. You're going to have to go, you die on that cross. You're going to have to spend the next three years with a bunch of losers that you're going to have to call your disciples. I mean, they're going to give you headaches and grief. One of them is going to betray you. This is how Satan talks. And so he lures us in and he tries to give us the easy route because we think that God is some way is not being fair or good. But the reality is God is good. He is good in every circumstance and in, in every way. Not every circumstance is good. Some of them are the result of people's sins. But God remains good. Even in those difficulties. A couple of verses. Psalm 34, verse 9. Well, wait. Before you get there, I keep running ahead. Think on this, this truth here. We must conclude that God does not withhold good from us. It has to be your conclusion. If you can only walk away with one thing this morning. Make it a determination that from now on, I will never think that God has withheld something good from me. I won't do that. I may not understand it, but I'm not going to allow what I don't know to cause me to forsake what I do know. What do I know? God is good. That's what I know. I'm not going to forsake that truth. So Psalm 34, 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want... To those who fear him, the young lions lack and suffer hunger. If there's anybody you ought to be able to get a meal, it ought to be a young lion. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Very similar to that. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. That's good stuff, isn't it? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. There it is again. God does not hold back. 
I, this is such an imperative truth for us to understand. Never ever, it's not in his nature to withhold good or to solicit you to evil. So we got to get the first one. He's not going to solicit me to evil. But on the positive side, he doesn't withhold good. And yet, the reality is, we can feel like, well, this circumstance I'm in is not good. Okay, that circumstance is not good. But God is still good. And he's not going to hold back good from you. Are you convinced of it? Do you believe it? This is what we must have in our mind. Psalm 27, verse 13. I had fainted. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. What happens when you don't believe that God's going to be good to you? You get weak. You get tired. You faint. You give up. Because you don't believe God is going to bring goodness to you. And if you don't believe that God is blessing you and is about to bless you more and to bless you again. And let's get this nonsense out of more money, bigger cars, bigger houses out of our mind. That doesn't do it for anybody. You might say, well, give me a try. I'll start in my department to give you a try. But look at those that have it. That's not where it's at, okay? If the Lord has blessed you with those things, enjoy them. But it's your spiritual life that you need to learn to enjoy, that I need to continue to ponder on. And if I don't believe I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord, I'm going to faint. Listen, does God need to answer a single prayer of your life moving forward knowing that he's already given you eternal life he doesn't need to do that for him to be good you already have this he's already given it to you again another passage about the goodness of the lord it's psalm 107 verse 1 and i encourage you to to go through psalm 107 and i'm going to look at four or five verses that repeat themselves and there's a lot in between. But verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Praise him. Worship him. Look at verse 8. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. There it is again. We've got to give thanks. How about verse 15? Well, verse 15 looks exactly like verse 8. How about verse 31? Well, verse 31 is another repeat of verse 15, which is a repeat of 8, which is a repeat of the theme of verse 1. So verse 1, verse 8, verse 15, verse 31, they all say the same thing. But verse 43, it concludes and says, Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Back to James. Don't be deceived. Well, I would think that being wise is not being deceived. Would you agree with that? If you're wise, then you're not being deceived. So what does verse 43 say? We will observe these things. What things? That God is good. That God is good. Can you see this theme that's, that's painted for us there in James and yet comes up over and over in Scripture? One of the, the, I think when we think of sin and getting out of sin, we often think of how do I extricate myself from this what negative things do I need to begin to do? I got to cut this off. I got to kill that. I got to wipe that out. I've got to destroy this. And there is a place for all of that. But I just want to tell you that while there's a place for that, I would encourage you first to start with a proper view of who your God is and start becoming a worshiper 
and then one who gives thanks, and you're going to find that wisdom is going to begin to settle into your heart and your mind. But see, you know, the problem is, is, but I don't feel like giving thanks, and the things I'm going through don't make me feel good. So I don't want to be hypocritical and say that God is good when I feel like my life is terrible. That's not hypocrisy. And if we're waiting for our emotions to be engaged and light us up to begin to praise him, then, then we're missing the point. We, this is truth. This is, this is how we are commanded to walk and to live. So my challenge to you, and we're going to close here in just a minute and spend some time in praise and worship. But verse 18, and we close here on this theme of understanding the goodness of the Lord is that our salvation proves God's goodness. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The gospel has saved us. We've been brought forth from, from death that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So if you're having a hard time seeing the goodness of the Lord in your present circumstances, look to your salvation. You're on your way to heaven. You're going to rule and reign with him. You're going to sit on a throne with him. You're going to have... 10 million years of nothing but goodness, and that will be your first day of eternity. You know, how long is eternity? Somebody once said, imagine that you had a ball bearing the size of planet Earth, and you took one single snail and set it on top of this and said, okay, by the time this little snail can cause through friction this ball bearing the size of planet Earth to be the size of a BB, there's your first day of eternity. So this is where our minds are. Look what you have. Rise up and be thankful. And if your, your mind or your emotions say, I don't want to be, then tell your mind and your emotions you're going to do it anyway. Say, I'm sorry, you may not want to come into praise and give thanks and worship God, but you're coming with me. I fed you, I combed your hair, I brushed your teeth, I fed you good food. You're coming with me now. I've taken care of you, but you're coming with me. And we're going to go give thanks, and we're going to give praise to the Lord because God is good. And there begins the deliverance of the deception. And now you'll be armed to be able to stand. I cannot emphasize this enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, your generosity to us. Lord, forgive us for thinking that you have withheld something from us. Lord, our emotions may tell us, and even circumstantially, our minds may be deluding us, but Lord, you are good. And we want to declare your goodness. We want to give you praise. We want to give you worship.